On June 20th, 1864, The Compiler, a newspaper out of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, published an article called Storms After Battle, which noted an odd pattern. Strong rain and thunderstorms almost always followed Civil War battles. The compiler looked back at three years of brutal war to prove, anecdotally of course, that the theory was true. Brutal clashes at Newmarket, Malvern Hill, Shiloh, both meetings at Bull Run, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Murfreesboro, and Gettysburg were all followed by torrential storms. The French, too, had noticed something similar during the Napoleonic Wars 50 years prior. The French Academy of Science studied the phenomena and, lacking any hard evidence as to why, simply declared that, yes, storms usually followed massive battles. The belief that the energy produced by an extreme, violent combustion would ascend into the sky and return as precipitation was commonplace back then. There are stories of entire American farm communities stockpiling all of their brush and wood. Then, during periods of drought, they would lit the whole heap ablaze and prayed that their fire would replicate whatever metaphysical force clashing armies had sent into the air and return as rain. In Living Hell, the Dark Side of the Civil War, historian Michael C.C. Adams writes that... Explanations for the rain varied. Perhaps reverberating cannonades disrupted cloud systems, or hot air from gunfire condensed in the upper atmosphere to be precipitated as rain. The fanciful opined the storms represented angels weeping over the slaughter. It's hard to even imagine such concentrated carnage. One of the war's most horrific moments of killing occurred on July 3, 1863, the final day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Confederate General Robert E. Lee ordered 13,000 soldiers to march shoulder to shoulder across open fields and attack fortified Union lines. All told, the Confederates on the field suffered over 50% casualties in just under an hour of combat. Michael Shera ends his 1974 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Killer Angels, with an elegiac baptism of the bloodied Gettysburg landscape. In an obvious homage to the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling in James Joyce's The Dead, Shera writes, The light rain went on falling on the hills above Gettysburg, but it was only the overture of the great storm to come. Out of the black night, it came at last, cold and wind and flooded with lightning. The true rain came in a monster wind, and the storm broke in blackness over the hills and the bloody valley. The sky opened along the ridge, and the vast water thundered down, drowning the fire, flooding the red creeks, washing the rocks and the grass and the white bones of the dead, cleaning the earth and soaking it thick and rich with water, and wet again with clean, cold rainwater, driving the blood deep into the earth to grow again with the roots toward heaven. It rained all that night. The next day was Saturday, the 4th of July. Shara dedicates alternating chapters to various leaders on both the Union and Confederate side. The closing chapter focuses on Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, 
a Bowdoin College rhetoric professor who led his 20th Maine Regiment on Little Round Top, arguably saving the entire battle and perhaps the war. Chamberlain, a prolific writer after the war during his post as professor and then president of Bowdoin and four-term governor of Maine, also noticed the trend of rain falling after a battle. In an 1870 letter to Edward Powers, who would publish his treatise, War and Weather, or the Artificial Production of Rain, the following year, Chamberlain wrote, This fact is well noticed, and is well remembered by many a poor fellow who, like myself, have been left lying, desperately wounded, after such engagements. For these rains are balm to the fever and anguish of the poor body that is promoted to the ranks of casualties. You're listening to Hidden Language, a podcast about tuning into place, bodies, and time, and discovering the unexpected ways their stories can be told. I'm Jay Varner. And I'm Scott Lunsford. Today, Jay tells us about concussionism, a once widely held belief that we might literally shoot rain from the sky. If that mix of unwarranted optimism and alarming violence seems perfectly American, well, you're right. But how might that relate to our response to climate change? In the January 2020 issue of Bioscience, a monthly peer-reviewed journal published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, over 11,000 of the world's preeminent scientists co-signed a treatise that warned of a dire climate emergency. Contrary to the American media's bad faith attempt to frame the existence and cause of climate change as some type of genuine scientific argument, there is virtually no debate amongst qualified experts. Since just the industrial age, mankind has so deliberately meddled with the primordial forces of nature that should things stay on our current trajectory, our species may not see the 22nd century. Consider this. You're simultaneously listening to this podcast episode while also living through the sixth mass extinction event in the history of planet Earth. The extinction you're probably most familiar with is Chicxulub, the asteroid which, in theory at least, ended the dinosaurs. The other four extinctions all occurred due to a rapid increase in atmospheric carbon, which, in turn, heated the planet enough to kill most species. That is the path that we are on at the moment. How we avoid this fate, again, contrary to what you may have heard, is largely agreed upon in the scientific community, due to a preponderance of evidence that reasonably allows us to conclude as much. According to those 11,000 scientists, we must increase energy efficiency and replace fossil fuels with low-carbon renewables. We must reduce the emissions of short-lived climate pollutants like methane, soot, and refrigerants used in air conditioning. We must work to restore Earth's ecosystems. We must eat mostly plant-based diet and curb the consumption of animal products. We must stop extracting and exploiting the limited natural resources available on Earth. And we must gradually reduce the currently unsustainable population on Earth. Committing to and achieving these goals is where serious debate should occur, because obviously we will all be making sacrifices. 
and this requires nothing short of a full-scale remodeling of our society, which we know that technology has already caused a fragment under the guise of connectivity. We also know that our species has an inherent status quo bias and, sure, perhaps a tendency to be a bit lazy. We could meaningfully reevaluate our relationship with the natural world. We could reconsider our unsatiated consumerist instincts. Or we could, you know, get an app or artificial intelligence or some profit-driven tech firm to fix all of this. Oh, what about Elon Musk or some other huckster? Well, one solution those 11,000 scientists did not endorse is known as climate engineering. That we must reduce carbon is obvious, but what if we cannot reduce those emissions fast enough to avert disaster? Solar engineers propose that we cool Earth by reflecting sunlight back into space. To do this, we must shoot some kind of particles into our upper atmosphere. And if we can wrest control of nature, we can freely belch carbon. No need to reevaluate a thing. Well, this makes me think of Rachel Carson. Her 1962 book, Silent Spring, first showed us the detrimental impacts pesticide use has on our natural environment. The working title of that book was The Control of Nature. Carson writes, The control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance, born of the Neanderthal age of biology and philosophy, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man. Those who believed that explosions on Earth caused rain in the sky were known as concussionists. The strangest amongst them was Robert St. George Dyronforth, the only man ever officially hired by the United States government to wage literal war against the sky. As a 2003 Texas Monthly feature noted, Dyronforth was the perfect man for the job, broad-shouldered, capable, extravagantly optimistic, and relentlessly self-promoting, he saw vast possibilities where others did not. In the dry, late summer of 1891, Forth led a team of self-proclaimed experts to Midland, Texas. Congress had dedicated $10,000, roughly a quarter of a million dollars today, for explosive experiments. A 2015 Politico article by Cynthia Barnett, author of Rain, a natural and cultural history, lists the contents of their accompanying freight car. Mortars, casks, barometers, electrical conductors, seven tons of cast iron borings, six kegs of blasting powder, eight tons of sulfuric acid, one ton of potash, 500 pounds of manganese oxide, an apparatus for making oxygen, and another for hydrogen, 10 and 20 foot tall muslin balloons and supplies for building enormous kites. Dyron Forth, wearing a pith helmet, drew up battle lines and angled mortars at the sky. And then, for 10 straight days, he fired everything he could at it. 
So, who was this Robert St. George Dyronforth? Well, he spent his childhood in Chicago, and then he was educated in a German military college. Though contemporary writings referred to him, probably at his insistence, as a general, Dyronforth never rose above the rank of a major in the U.S. Cavalry during the Civil War and subsequent years after. When he left the military, he worked for the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C., resigning in 1885 to enter private life. When it came to science, Dyronforth never mentioned that he had no training in meteorology or explosives. However, the rainmaking patents he had read during his stint in the patent office impressed him so much he became a convert of concussionism. Well, it was that and that he just so happened to launch his war as settlers in western Texas discovered that the place was not the lush, fertile paradise they'd been promised. And as we all know, desperate people will often believe anything if it might help their situation. But it wasn't just Dyronforth and those desperate farmers who believed. Newspapers dedicated banner headlines to the experiments. The Washington Post declared the program is elaborate, the material abundant, and the science involved exhaustive. And Dyronforth kept up the ruse, sending out press releases explaining the amount of rain that followed a day of explosions. He rushed back to Washington and lobbied Congress for more money, getting somewhere between a half million to a million dollars, based upon the successes of his experiments. In October of 1891, he wrote a rambling article in the North American Review called Can We Make It Rain, which urged a larger financial commitment from the U.S. government. By the end of page 14, Dyronforth finally answers the question by relaying the findings of his experiments. Explosions affect atmospheric conditions probably by disturbing the upper currents. When the atmosphere is in a threatening condition, such as drought, explosions jar together the particles of moisture which hang in suspension in the air. It, it you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's not true. Uh, because here's the thing. <laughs> While Dyronforth no doubt enjoyed detonating an army's worth of ordnance, nothing of note actually fell from the sky. Most of the observations of rain were all fabrications. And what little rain that did fall came during the region's rainy season, when passing afternoon storms or showers weren't uncommon, even in a severe drought. In fact, the Weather Service had already predicted each period of rain, in many instances days before the explosive experiments. That Dyronforth bamboozled the public with all of this should have come as no surprise. Nearly a decade earlier, an article in Science Magazine mentions that Henry Chamberlain Russell, an Australian astronomer and president of the Royal Society of New South Wales, addressed the group about the artificial production of rain. Russell told of a French naval officer who witnessed water spouts destroyed by cannon shot while at sea. After the men retired to an area beset by violent rain and hailstorms, the men constructed a battery to fire at the storms. Russell claimed the man saw so much success that the practice became widespread in early 19th century France. Francois Arago, 
a celebrated French scientist, politician, and director of the Paris Observatory, studied the weather record at the Astronomical Center to test the theory in the 1840s. He paid particular attention to days surrounding ordnance practice at a nearby military fort. The soldiers fired around 150 shots on certain days throughout the week. Arago found that out of the 662 days that he recorded, there was no correlation between shooting artillery and cloudy days, thus proving that the discharge of heavy artillery does not seem to have an effect of dissipating the clouds. Henry Chamberlain Russell agreed, and in his talk to the Royal Society of New South Wales, he pushed Arago's theory even further. It would be all but impossible to ever manipulate the complex atmospheric conditions found in nature. By November of 1892, Dyron IV had returned to Texas with 40 tons of explosives. However, others began to suspect something didn't make sense. George Curtis, a federal meteorologist assigned to the original expedition, had spent the subsequent months lambasting Dyron IV's project as, in his words, a burlesque on science and common sense. And while no newspapers bothered to send reporters to Texas this time, two agricultural trade papers had writers on the ground to witness the experiments. In January of 1892, their work provided the evidence of a Scientific American article that noted Dyronforth's press releases were complete concoctions. In fact, many of Dyronforth's jerry-rigged explosives either failed to detonate or blew up when not intended. The criticisms and skepticisms cascaded from there. The New York Tribune wondered that if explosions could cause violent storms, perhaps the opposite would occur if orchestras were sent in balloons to soothe violent storms. Congress mostly shrugged. They gave Dyron Forth $10,000 for a return trip to Texas. A large crowd greeted him when he arrived, and he chose a spot four miles from downtown for his first experiment. And then, when he detonated that explosive inside the mesquite tree, about 500 feet from the Argyle Hotel, he obliterated not only the tree, but every window in the hotel. And that is what caused the Secretary of Agriculture to write Dyron forth and demand that he returned all unspent money to the U.S. Treasury. He said, we do not desire to cannonade the clouds any longer at government expense. During World War I, the Atlantic Monthly noted that the winter of 1914 into 1915 brought excessive rain to European battlefields. Science writer Alexander McCady wondered, has the bombarding not only caused clouds, but forced the clouds to send down rain? McCady had a unique perspective on the topic. He had forecasted weather throughout much of America, and near the end of the article, he correctly predicted that meteorology would eventually include atmospheric science. McCady dismissed that 1871 Edward Powers book, War and Weather, or the Artificial Production of Rain. Powers had used anecdotal stories like the one by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain to conclusively claim that Civil War battles were followed by heavy rain. McCady had actually witnessed experiments similar to those of dry and forth under favorable conditions and saw no causal relation between the detonations of the dynamite and the showers. 
McKady deemed Dyronforth such a con artist that he refused to even mention him by name. So, if war didn't cause abnormal weather, what did? McKady had no idea. His best suggestion was this. Excessive rains have occurred in previous years when there were no wars, and in all probability will occur again, regardless of the prevalence of gunfire. Dyron Forth made headlines one final time in 1910. By then, he had returned to his old life in Washington, D.C., and faded into obscurity as a patent attorney. After a particularly nasty divorce, Dyron Forth redrafted his will in April of 1909 and then died a year later. He left his estate to his 12-year-old grandson, who he had adopted a few years prior. However, in order to inherit the estate, Dyron Forth listed a series of prerequisites for the boy. First, he was to renounce Catholicism, and secondly, he should avoid all women and that meant disowning his own mother and sister. He was to graduate high school by the age of 14 and then attend Harvard, during which time he would visit each country in Europe, including England, where he would study law at Oxford. By the time he graduated Harvard at the age of 18, he should also have learned a manual trade, athletics and dance, and become proficient in both violin and piano. At this point, the boy would attend West Point and enlist in the Army. After his military career ended, the boy would need to be thoroughly educated in the law. And, if he did all of these things by the required ages, he would inherit Dyronforth's estate when he was 28 years old. All of this obviously implied that Dyronforth had a substantial estate. But he didn't. Like everything else in his life, Robert St. George Dyronforth had greatly exaggerated. But it got good press. You have been listening to Hidden Language. For a list of episodes, transcripts, and show notes, be sure to visit hiddenlanguagepodcast.com. Theme music by Jay Varner. Other music for this episode was provided by Samuel Corwin, Blear Moon, Blue Dot Sessions, Chad Crouch, Pottington Bear, and Livio Amato. Thanks to Daniel DeReese and Patrick Culleton. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the word using whatever language you see best fit.